So today we're going to deal with the faith of a blind man. And I use the title blind faith, tongue firmly planted in cheek, because there is no such thing. Uh, There is no such thing because we should not describe our faith as blind. And that's often what people think of when they think of Christians. They think of poor, misguided souls who have this baseless, blissful hope in imaginary things. And sometimes, Christians, we go along with that. And it's important that we look at our faith rightly and we don't see it as something that is, that is purely blind. Because often, people think of faith as someone stumbling around in the darkness, hoping to grasp onto something, no knowledge or understanding or, or evidence with which to find any comfort or confidence. But that is not our faith. It is not so with us. You know, maybe it's kind of like when you walk to the bathroom at night and you don't want to turn on the light, uh, so you're like stumbling around because you don't want to wake up too much. But it's not really like that either, because you know where things are. You, even though you can't see it, you know that there's a chair somewhere over there, there's a door somewhere over here, and a sink somewhere over here. And even if you can't physically see it, it doesn't mean it's not there. And so that's what I want us to think about and, and to train our minds for this morning, Just because you can't see something doesn't mean that it isn't there. And this is important for our faith. And it's beautiful in our study in Hebrews. Because we're in chapter 11 now, and chapter 11 begins with the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Just because we can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. We have assurances, and we have convictions that do not require physical sight. That is our faith. That is sure. That can stand on convictions without external evidences. And this is why Jesus' encounter with Bartimaeus is so amazing. It's such a vivid and visual picture that includes a blind man of the gospel. Especially his lack of sight and his abundance of faith. And so this morning, it's rich with symbolism and rich with application throughout the entire text. And so not just that, where it's positioned in Mark's letter is kind of this this climax of chapter 10. Chapter 10 showing after the transfiguration what it looks like to be a disciple. Jesus teaching them what it means to follow him. What discipleship will look like and what it will cost you. And the prime example in the entire text is this blind, forgotten beggar by the side of the street who people walk by every day, who they discount, who they never give a second thought to. And he shows some of the strongest strongest faith in the entire book. And it sets up beautifully the triumphal entry next week. So let's let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read 46 through 52. Mark 10, 46. And they came to Jericho. And he was, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, 
he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for those of us in the room who have felt like Bartimaeus, for those of us in the room who have been Bartimaeus, knowing our own worthlessness, wretchedness, wickedness, helplessness, crying out to you. Oh, I wish everyone would know what it means to cry out to the Son of David and hear Him call their name and restore them. Lord, this is why we gather. Because we have been turned from beggars to kings and priests. Because we have been restored to what was lost at the fall. Because we have been saved by the Son of David. This is also why we gather, so that everyone in our midst, everyone in our lives, would hear this message again and again. In Jesus, there is life. In Jesus, there is healing. In Jesus, there is restoration. In Jesus, there is reconciliation. And in Jesus, there is life everlasting through the forgiveness of sins. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So as Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem, we are getting closer and closer to the Feast of Passover. Next week, the triumphal entry, the week before the Passover feast. And as he's making his way down or uh, south toward Jerusalem, they're beginning to make their way up to the mount. Jericho is very low, uh, so it's about a... um, a 10-hour uh, trip or a 10-mile trip, but it's, it's going to take six hours or more because you're going up and down and rocky, uh, rocky roads. And um, the interesting thing about Jericho is it's a bustling city. It's a very cosmopolitan city with a lot going on. So especially prior to Passover, all the Jews from the north are making their way into Jerusalem. And so there's quite a scene whether Jesus shows up or not. But now Jesus shows up with his disciples and a great crowd. So already you've got this buzz for the Passover, and now there's this teacher that everyone's heard something about, and he's coming with his disciples and this great crowd. So there's a huge commotion going on. And it's the same city and the same occasion where he meets Zacchaeus. If you know Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Uh, Who knew he was Irish? Go figure. You can see why Zacchaeus would, want to, would need to get up in a tree. 
Some of you will get that on the way home. Um, because he's small in stature, as Luke tells us. So he climbs a tree so that he can see over the crowd so he can see Jesus. This is the atmosphere. Everyone coming, everyone coming to look, all of this, this energy, everyone coming into, into Jericho, Jews and Gentiles alike, and they're all looking at Jesus. Some are clamoring, some are looking, some, like Bartimaeus, can't see at all. Bartimaeus, who's a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. Uh, Mark's mention here is just an explanation of the Aramaic. Bar is the Aramaic word for son. Bar, Timaeus, he's the son of Timaeus. And so he's just helping the Gentile readers understand why his name is Bartimaeus. But Bartimaeus is interesting. The only healing in all of the Gospels that is recorded with a name. All the other healing accounts are anonymous. A man, a woman, we hear of Mary Magdalene who was healed, but we don't get the account. This account, this man, his name, the only one recorded. It's incredible. And again, a beautiful picture of the gospel. He's a blind man. So the other thing you need to know culturally, blindness was very common. There are some reports that up to 50% of many cities had, had eye ailments. And there are many reasons for that. The glare on the ground as you're walking in the hot sun and the sun reflecting uh, off the, the, the ground into your eyes. The, the dust that was everywhere. The uh, living conditions that were unsanitary. And so it was not common for someone to have an eye infection which could not be cured. And in that culture, you were destined to be destitute. If you could not see, you could not get around, there's nothing else you could do. You had no options. You had no hope, and it wasn't much of an existence. And so when you were, you were blind, and you were sitting on the roadside, and you are beholden to the generosity of strangers, there is no greater desperation. In our humanity, you can't get much lower than that. And so if there is a chance that someone could do something, if there's a chance that this guy that I've heard about, if there's a chance that he might restore my sight, that he might heal me, I'm going to cry out as much as I can and as often as I can in this crowded street here. Because if he doesn't, he's not used to being seen or heard. Every day, all day long, people would walk by him, most of them ignoring him. And you must, first application we have here is you must be desperate to cry out to Jesus. You can't be like the rich man whose confidence is in his stuff. You can't be like the man who has to go back to the plow or the man who puts his, his marriage or the death of a family member before Jesus. You must be desperate. You must have no other choice. He must be more important and more valuable than anything else in your life. You must be desperate to be free of your bondage. This man is so desperate for light because he is, he is living in darkness. So it is with us. You must be so sick of the darkness that you cry out for light. And many people walk around in darkness. 
sit in the side of the road in blindness because they are scared of the light and they hate the light. But Bartimaeus knows he needs the light and he has heard of Jesus. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, this crowd, this, this commotion, he believed the accounts of Jesus. He had not seen them, obviously. He didn't need any signs. He had just heard. He had heard rumors. He had heard whispers. He had heard declarations. He may be blind, but his faith certainly isn't. I love what James Edwards in his commentary, he says, what he lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. Absolutely. What he lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. And we saw this theme on Wednesday night in Hebrews 11. At the end of their lives, both Isaac and Jacob were blind. They couldn't see their sons as they blessed them, but they didn't need to. Because their faith was in the promises of God, even though they would never see the promised land, even though they would never see one of their own sit on the throne over Israel, even though they would never see the, 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 the offspring come into the land, they prophesied it and proclaimed it over their sons because they trusted. Never to be seen in this life. Great parallel to the two. And so here's this man, no sight, but he has a voice. And here's what he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this isn't just a whisper. This is not him trying to persuade Jesus. He cries out, son of David, why? Why that term? It's such a loaded term. And since we're not going to have many cross-references, I want you to turn in your Bible with me. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 7. If you don't know where 2 Samuel 7 is, go to the beginning, go past the Pentateuch, past Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, you'll find 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. This is God's covenant with David. God tells David, I'm going to make you king, but also there's a future promise slipped in of a son. This reference is to the kingly line, the tribe of Judah. And from the tribe of Judah would come this promised king. It's a, there's, a, there's a messianic undertone to son of David. Listen to how this son is described. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is why the disciples thought that there would be an earthly messianic reign. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is partially fulfilled in Solomon. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, hold that thought, address that in a moment. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
There's this eternal throne, there's this eternal kingship, someone who will come from the house of David, his very son, from the tribe of Judah. Now if you read that, and you think this is looking forward ultimately to Jesus, and it is, how could Jesus commit iniquity? How could Jesus sin? Are we talking about the same Jesus here? We've got to move forward a couple hundred years and look at Psalm 89, which quotes and applies this psalm to Israel's present state. Now, the state in which Israel finds itself in Psalm 89 is looking back to the reign of David and Solomon when everything was glorious, when Israel was the most feared and most wealthy nation. And this is a psalm of praise Praising God for what He's done in Israel. But it's also a psalm of petition. Because it is not like it was in the past. And so the, 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 the psalmist, later on in Psalm 89, says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Because the promises to David are not being experienced in Israel right now. But in the middle, he quotes this very passage from 2 Samuel 7. Look at verse 30. Look at the interpretation and the application of the psalmist here. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. The psalmist rightly understands this. That his children, the ones coming after him, if they break the law, I will punish their transgressions. But Nathan, or excuse me, when God speaks to David, he's right also. I will punish him with the rod of men. At the same time, he will be punished. And their transgressions will be punished. These two come together that the son of David himself will take on these punishments. Not because he deserves it, because his steadfast love will never be removed from him. If we continue reading, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness to the skies. This is the messianic kingdom. This is the son of David. And this is exactly what Matthew picked up on. Many people wonder, why are the genealogies in the Bible? If you move forward to Matthew, in the Gospels, you get the purpose of all four Gospels in the first verse. If you look at Matthew, who begins with a genealogy, what is the purpose of Matthew's gospel? What is Matthew setting out to prove in the next 28 chapters? Matthew 1.1. This connects the Old and New Testaments. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew knows what is most important. He is son of Abraham, the man of faith. He is son of David, the promised king. He is Jesus Christ. 
Now, did Bartimaeus know all this? Did he have all this in mind? Maybe not directly, but prophetically, through faith, he understood Jesus, the son of David. So I don't want you to miss that term. I don't want to just gloss right over it. It is rich with with symbolism, and he rightly understands Christ. And even his request is very particular. Son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't ask for help. He doesn't ask for charity. He asks for mercy. This is important. Because in that culture, only God's kings and judges could give mercy. No one else had the authority or the ability to give mercy. He's asking for compassion. He is putting himself, he is submitting himself under Jesus' authority. Have mercy on me. He knows he's not owed anything. But he appeals to a God who promises to have mercy on his people. This is so complete, so theologically rich. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you would think, what a, what a rich and beautiful plea. But what do we do? We're scoffers. We're critical. We're judgmental. So all the people around him, he's just an annoyance. He's just another loud beggar who's, who's trying to get more attention than everybody else. And this man who's crying out to Jesus is rebuked. Verse 48, and many rebuke him telling him to be silent. Stop talking. Shut up. You're annoying us. You're, 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 you're bothering us. We want to see him do something amazing. When you cry out to Jesus, people are going to think you're crazy. They're going to tell you to shut up. They're going to tell you to tone it down a little bit. But I love his response. Doesn't even have to defend himself. Doesn't respond to their rebukes. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't care what people thought. He made a spectacle of himself to be noticed by Jesus. How often are we more concerned with being dignified and prim and proper? than crying out to Jesus? How often are we more concerned with pleasing man and what people might think about us? He is so burdened by his own wretchedness, by his own neediness, he can't stop from crying out. I need mercy. I need compassion. I need deliverance, and only you can bring it. Jesus, Son of David. Again and again and again, he cries out. He is determined He is not going to give up until he receives mercy. And God honors that. We see it all throughout Scripture. We see Jacob as he wrestles with the angel of the Lord will not let go until he is blessed. I am not going to stop until you bless me, God. We give up so easily. We are naturally quitters. Maybe the most amazing example of this, Jesus speaks in a parable in Luke 18 the persistent widow. And it's a great parallel. If you have your Bibles, go to Luke 18. I'm going to stop asking if you have your Bibles. I'm just going to tell you, bring your Bibles and go to Luke 18. Luke 
Jesus is applying the same principle. So we see great faith in this man and great faith in this persistent widow. Luke 18, starting in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Here's, here's the purpose. Always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. Judges are no different. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. I mean, she's been doing this for a while. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Very dramatic judge. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Notice how the determination of the woman is connected with faith. She is not giving up. And she's only the lesser example. The greater example is for God's elect, His chosen people, those who He sets His love on. Won't He listen? Amen. But we forget that. We think, oh, I've asked God once. I've gone before Him once. He didn't answer me in my time the way I think he should. So maybe God's not there. Maybe God's not listening. Maybe God doesn't care about me. Be like the persistent widow. Be like blind Bartimaeus. Even if you feel like you are annoying God, keep praying. Keep going before him. Because God doesn't need you to tell him what you need. God doesn't need you to go before him. You need to go before him. You need to humble yourself before him. You need to recognize your neediness, your wretchedness. You need to recognize, I need to recognize, I need mercy. And forgive me, Lord, when I only ask once. Forgive me, Lord, when I fail to come to you day and night. But thank God that we can come to him day and night. And it is usually only in this place of desperation I mean, we know this to be true. When things are going well, when things are only slightly difficult, we don't pray that often. But when they're really tough, when we are really hurt, when we are really sick, when we are really disappointed, it is then that we cry out to God. It is then that we go to Him again and again and again, and then that we find comfort. It's sad that we have to be driven to that point of desperation, that we learn our dependence for Him. But we must pray with fervency, confident in a God of mercy, because we have known His grace. And Jesus stops. This is emphasized in the Greek. Jesus is leaving town and He stands still. The man has Jesus' attention. And He says, call Him. Watch the Gospel progression in this verse. The merciful attention of the Son of God. The call goes out. 
and the faithful servants take up the call of their master with good news. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. The faithful servants of the master, the disciples respond here, take heart. Three simple phrases. This is our gospel presentation. This is how we share the good news. Take heart. One, it must come out of compassion. You must care that the person is hurting. You must know that they need Jesus. Take heart. The disciples have concern for this helpless beggar. The first thing is, take heart. Do not be afraid. Be encouraged. Jesus knows you're hurting. The second thing, get up, is a call to action. Repent. Turn from what you're doing. Stop doing what you're doing and get up. Come to Jesus. Respond to the call. Take heart. Get up. He is calling. Knowing that the call is from Jesus to Jesus. This is the gospel call. It is not about how well you can string a sentence together. It is not about how strong your apologetics are. It is a call to take heart, to get up, and go to Jesus. That is evangelism. That is the gospel call. Because unless they turn from what they're doing and look upon the one who was pierced for their iniquities, who was punished for their transgressions, who was crushed for their sins, there's no hope. But if they are sheep and they hear the Master's call and they respond to that, they respond as He does. But before we get there, I want us to think about this for a moment. Because as, as I was thinking about this week, uh, again, there's gospel allusions all through this, and I don't have time to get into all of them. But I want us to think. You know, this is what we do when we preach and we evangelize. We see the spiritually blind, and we, we, reiter- we reiterate the call of the Master, imploring them to respond. We give the call without knowing who will respond. It's not up to us. We don't need to know. We can say, Take heart. Get up. The Master's calling, and whether they respond or not, it's up to them. Whether the Lord is drawing them or not. Our job, the Gospel, is from beggars to beggars. Telling them where to find bread. I was blind and now I see. I was lost and now I'm found. Let me take you to the one who saved me. This is evangelism, folks. But now I want to go a step further. Why don't we share the gospel more often? Intimidation? Maybe. Fear? Probably. I think, and I look inside my own heart, why don't I share the gospel more often? I don't see people as lost as they really are. I don't think we think about what it really means to be lost. I don't think we see people we come into contact every day as hopeless as Bartimaeus. Because we see people who look us in our eyes, who we have conversations with, who, who listen to what we say. They tell us their, their, their hopes and dreams and their, and their good intentions. We can have a dialogue. They're going about their business. They're, go, they're working, eating, playing. By all sensory evidence, 
They are perfectly healthy. But do we see people with spiritual sight? Do we see people how they really are in their hearts? Do we forget that these people who appear good, these walking, seeing, hearing, speaking people, are blind, deaf, and dumb to the kingdom of God without Christ? Do we forget that? I know I do. Do we forget that they are spiritually helpless and hopeless? Going through the life of emptiness and vanity. Working for what does not last. Hoping for what cannot help. Like Bartimaeus, their sins blind them. Enslave them. And only the call from Jesus to Jesus will save them. Will we be those faithful servants who continue the call of the Master? Who say to those who know that they are blind or those who don't know that they are blind, repent, turn from what you're doing, believe in Jesus, take heart, get up, go to Him. And this man has the best response ever. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. This is so vivid. This is a, I love that Mark includes these little details. He doesn't lo- include a lot. But what he does, it makes for great storytelling and great preaching. Think about it. He throws off his, his cloak. This is his, you know, his kind of semi-formal attire. He's got his undergarment underneath that. You know, he, he throws off what would make him dignified. He's already made a spectacle of himself. At this point, he doesn't care. He throws off his, his, his suit jacket or, you know, w- whatever else your, the, the, the parallel is, and he jumps up. He, like, like, like this bounding, bouncing blind man, like Tigger jumping up, and he is ready to run to Jesus. That's how you should respond when you hear this call. I love Bartimaeus. He became one of my favorite people in Mark after studying th- this week. Jumps up. And then I thought about it. It's like, man, I am way too concerned about what people think. He cries out. He throws off his jacket and he jumps up. He certainly can't be reformed. (laughs) Sadly. But are we so afraid to be undignified? I mean, David dancing around, this man who's got this great bounding faith. Lord, forgive me when I care more about how people see me than how you see me. Jesus asked him a simple question. Verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? Does this question sound familiar? We saw the same question last week. And James and John and their desire for glory come to Jesus. He asked them the same exact question. What do you want me to do for you? These are meant to be contrasted next to one another. They ask for glory. They ask selfishly to be exalted. This man wants a simple request. I want to be whole again. I want to be human. Because in this culture, he is subhuman. As a blind beggar, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. This tells us that he saw at one time. He's probably one of these people who had 
an infection or something that changes his life drastically. And his simple, humble request to be whole again. Man, how often do we take sight for granted? But if you're blind, you don't forget that you're blind. You don't ever take it for granted. But I think what's even worse is we take our spiritual sight for granted. That we can see, we are given the mind of Christ. We can see things that are spiritual, yet we continue to walk in things that are carnal. This man could not see with his eyes, but he trusted his spiritual sight. How often do we pray for spiritual sight? Are we persistent in praying for wisdom? Are we persistent in praying for biblical insight the way the widow was? Are we persistent in going before the Lord and crying for help? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, tune in my terrible vision. Give me 20-20 spiritual sight. We don't. And with this simple request, in faith, Jesus responds in a simple way. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Three things I want you to see here. Number one, go your way. He's free. We're going to see in a moment, he is, his eyes are immediately opened. He's healed. And he could go his way. He could go the way that he came from. He could continue in what he was doing before. And this is the easiest thing to do. Because many people want to come to Jesus, they want to be healed, they want to get this situation fixed, and want to go right back to what they're doing. And many of us do this in our prayer lives. All right, Jesus, solve this for me now, and I'm going to go right back to the busyness of my life, and I'll come back when I need something again. Every one of us has been guilty of that. And he could have. He was sent to go his own way. But if you've been blind and a beggar sitting in the dirt, being ignored and mocked and someone gives you sight, how could you go back to your old way? How could you go back to your old clothes and your old things that you threw off? Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Second thing, his faith. His faith was not blind. There is no blind faith in Bartimaeus. He may have been a blind man, but his faith saw spiritually clear. He knew who Jesus was. He knew that he must call out to him. And he ran to him. He looked upon Jesus with eyes to see. Even if his pupils and his retinas failed him. Your faith has made you well. Third thing. There is one Greek word for made well and for save. doesn't always mean save. often mean made, made well. But it's not the same. Uh, it has a healing connotation as well. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. He has received both uses of this word. Both physical and spiritual. It is well with his eyes and his soul. Your faith has made you well. This is evangelism, ladies and gentlemen. Take heart. Get up. The Master's calling you. And those who run to Jesus, the sheep who hear the shepherd's voice, their faith will heal them. Their faith will make them well. Nothing he could bring or add. 
And then we see this full transformation. Mark does not include these details by accident. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Look at this full transformation from sitting on the roadside, helpless, to walking with Jesus on the way to Calvary. He could have went his own way. But his faith made him a devoted follower of Jesus. Luke adds a detail. He went on his way glorifying God. Amen. And all the people praising God. Bartimaeus knew how wicked he was. Knew how much of a deficit he was in. So he knew how much he gained. And he jumped to follow Jesus. Do we know how much we've gained? Like if you've had more than a five minute conversation with me, you know that I'm wicked. But I don't often remember how wretched I am. But I look at Bartimaeus. He knew. He knew how helpless he was. Forgive us, Lord, when we forget how helpless we are. Forgive us when we don't jump at the voice of Jesus. Forgive us when we are not as excited to follow him on the way. When we are not as devoted that we will leave our old clothes, our old things, our old lives. It doesn't matter. I have Jesus now. It's this beautiful picture of a gospel response. As we are told that we walk by faith and not by sight, our faith is not blind. It sees clearly. And I want to end here before we get into our application. In 1 Peter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn there, but the appropriate verses will be up on the screen. In 1 Peter, he commends the church for their faith. This faith that is tested and true has been given to them by God. And it is His power that is holding an inheritance for them that they cannot see in a kingdom that they have not seen in a Savior that they have not seen with eyes. But look at how Peter describes faith here. Verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you read 1 Peter 1 and you are in Christ, it should bring more joy to your heart than anything else you will do in that day. Because our blessed God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to give you a quick, quick recap of our passage in Mark. 
Look at the gospel progression here as we go back through quickly. Verse 46, a blind beggar knows his desperation. This is necessary for faith. Verse 47, he throws himself upon the mercy of the Messiah because he has no other hope. Also necessary. This comes out of faith. Verse 48, the man of faith does not care what people think. He continually cries out in his wretchedness for mercy to the son of David. Verse 49, God looks lovingly on the poor in spirit and calls them to come to him. And in turn, his servants take up the mission of calling the lost to take heart and come to Jesus. Verse 50, when the faithful hear the shepherd's voice, they jump up and run to him, throwing off the old things. Verse 51, in faith we know that only Jesus can make us well, save us, fully human to be a new creation in him. 52, by faith you are saved. And if you are saved, you follow your Savior, glorifying God. Amen. Two quick points of application here. Can you say with Bartimaeus, I was blind and now I see? If so, don't put back on the old clothes. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't continue in the old things. Put on the new self. You are united with Christ. You have His holiness, His righteousness. Glorify God in that and call other beggars to take heart, get up, and come to Him. Number two, if you are not in that category, are you still blind? Or maybe in your own arrogance, you think, I'm not blind, I'm fine, just how I am. The call is still the same. But maybe like Bartimaeus, you need to know that you are helpless and wretched. But that call to take heart, get up, and come to the Master is still the same. If that is you this morning, I pray that you have ears to hear. I pray that you have eyes to see Jesus, the Son of David, who can make you well, so that you may follow him along the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. You are glorious and awesome. We magnify your great name as you have brought us from darkness to light. You have brought us from death to life. You have brought us from blindness to sight. What other God whose mercy is more than our sins, who's more gracious than we deserve, who else could open the eyes of the blind? Who else could free the captives? Who else could save the lost? Only a holy God. And our God is not a far-off, distant God who doesn't know our weakness and our pain. Our God is the Son of David. king who walked as a peasant, a judge who gives mercy to his own. 
a son who brings many sons to glory. We praise the holy name of our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. Amen.